0: Welcome to uh, this version of our podcast, What's the Score? Let me remind you that if you enjoy today's podcast, or any of our podcasts for that matter, to please press the like button on whatever format you're listening to the podcast on. Also consider supporting us by uh, joining us on patreon.com and show your support for the program that way. There'll be details to follow in the middle of the podcast. Once again, thanks for listening and enjoy today's terrific interview, as well as some amazing film music. Today's program made possible by patrons like you. Welcome to where we celebrate music from the movies, From the golden age to present day, we've got it all covered. We talk to those in the entertainment industry and find out about their favorite scores. You found the podcast, What's the Score? I'm your host, Frank R. Wilson. So sit back, relax, grab a popcorn, and let's see what we'll be hearing today. Recognize that music? It's a favorite of our guest today. Uh, he's not our traditional guest, I guess, if you will. he He's not an actor or a composer. Rather, he's what I would call a super, super fan. He's an author, an artist. Actually, he is a composer. He's also an ex-con. And he's extremely <laughs> knowledgeable about film music. I've admired him from afar as a Facebook connection, and I'm excited to have him with us today. So please join me in welcoming Terry Wallstrom to the program. Hi, Terry.
1: Good morning, Frank. How are you?
0: I'm good. I'm good. And I hope you didn't mind that little extra reference of your background. So Well, I've got
1: plenty of uh, Kleenex here, so if you hear, <laughs> if you hear me weeping.
0: <laughs> Somehow I don't think that's going to happen. But anyway, my, my sincere thanks for joining us. Um, uh, I'm just going to be a broken record here, like I am with most of my guests, as my uh, listeners will know. We want to know a little bit about... Terry the person outside of the film music realm, so if you wouldn't mind kind of share with us a little bit about, you know, yourself, your family, growing up, and, you know, all that kind of stuff that uh, has made you who you are today.
1: Sure. Uh, I doubt most of it is interesting, so I'll leave that part out. Uh, I I was raised in uh, Fort Worth, Texas. I was born in Detroit, Michigan, which is Motown. Uh, but I was I was only there six months and my, my mother couldn't get along with my father's mother. They were living in their house there and so she flew me back to Fort Worth and uh, I didn't see my father again until I was 25 when I went looking for him. But I uh, came from a family, my, my grandmother loved opera. She was French and she was raised a French Catholic girl and whenever she was a bad girl they would put her uh in with the nuns and they would uh, they would punish her and i had the benefit of that because then she would use those catholic punishments on me as a kid <laughs> so if i was bad are you ready for this frank if i was a bad kid i would get an ice water enema oh my oh yeah <laughs> too
0: much information terry
1: yes <laughs> And of course, you know the ruler across the the palm of the hands, things like that. So you know, I shaped I shaped up pretty fast, Frank. Right? My grandfather was German, and uh, he was a very shy man. But he had some important friends that, so he could uh, play golf at a country club, even though he could never afford to, to have a membership. Uh, he was a window dresser for a big department store. So he was artistic, and uh, I guess I got the artistic part of my own personality from him. And uh, the, the the main time, my mother loved to sing, but the main thing getting into film music is they love going to movies and I would go with them. And uh, they would take me to any kind of movie, no children's movies, you know, every kind of movie there was. And I just learned to sit there with my hands folded and take it all in, whether I understood it or not.
0: <laughs> and I and I, I seem to recall that you and I have several different connections, but one of them that was kind of interesting was that I used to work for a company called Nokia, which is based in Finland, and I, you've got Finnish roots. Was that on your dad's side?
1: Yes, on my father's side. My, okay. My uh, An odd connection here is that uh, my father's father, which would be my paternal grandfather, uh, he had a real problem being Finnish. They were constantly being inducted into the Swedish army, because uh, the uh, the king of Sweden uh, was a very military guy. And he was always going into war. He loved war. And the Finns were pretty sick of the fact that their their boys had to go, you know, be uh, conscripted. So he just picked up his family, he had four boys, and uh, they moved to the United States, and they moved to Detroit. And Detroit is a big haven for uh, Poles and Finns in the same way that uh, Argentina was a big haven for (laughs) ex-Nazis. Not quite the same thing, but- uh, Yeah,
0: no, but I I didn't realize that about Detroit. That's interesting.
1: And uh, and an odd statistic, the tallest people in the United States come from Michigan. And that's because, you know, Finns, Swedes, Norwegians. Uh, I'm six feet, four inches tall. My, my, My dad was only five, seven. (laughs)
0: <laughs> How funny.
1: But, um, uh, but the, the point I wanted to make is uh, they weren't conscientious objectors, but they did object to being conscripted into the war. So, you know, I would share that uh, that eventuality in a way that I didn't know about until I was 25 years old.
0: Yeah, yeah. Perhaps we'll get into that later. That's That's interesting. That's interesting. Well, let, let me tell my listeners today that, that Terry and I have had several conversations preparing for this, and and we're going to take a little bit of a, a different approach to the program today, which is a good thing, I think. And it's because of Terry's uh, uh, musical knowledge and also the fact that he's such a fan of film music that we're going to play a lot more music today than we usually do. We don't really care about Terry. We're not going to talk about him so much. We're going to talk about the music. That's um, just a joke. It's just a joke. Uh, but, 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 but we thought it might be interesting given the fact that I, I've always liked reading his analysis of film music that that's what we would share with our audience today. So the, uh, the first cue that we were going to, uh, talk about comes from a movie called The Thing. And it's, a uh, written by, uh, Dimitri I don't think I said that right, but <laughs> I think you know t-yum-kin. what I'm talking about.
1: Yeah, Tiamkin.
0: Tijamkin, pardon me. Um. Tell me a little bit about why you wanted to highlight that cue, and what is it about that cue that uh, not only makes it special to you, but perhaps to other people listening to it.
1: Uh, The Thing from Another World was a black-and-white movie. Howard Hawks was the producer, and some say he mostly directed it. Uh, But it was, uh, I guess you'd call it a horror science fiction film. And I was a five-year-old kid. Uh, taken to see that movie over and over you know my uncle would go he'd take me my mother would go take me my grandma you know so and so and 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 every time I would be terrified so uh you know my mother said well just put your hands over your eyes and that didn't help I was still scared and then I had a, a an epiphany like Paul on the road to Damascus it was the music that was scaring the crap out of me as a little kid and uh this epiphany made me aware that uh we're defenseless against music. It's something that gets inside of us and it affects our emotions. And from then on, I was sort of, I had a, a secret understanding of life that I didn't have before I went to a science fiction movie. And this, uh, the snippet that, that I gave you to play there is uh, from the main title, but it kind of gives you the, the feeling of the power of his music.
0: And before we play it I'm curious because I've had an opportunity to do this have you have you ever had an opportunity to watch a film without a score yes
1: yes it, I it, have. It,
0: it's amazing how flat it falls isn't it
1: did did did
0: yeah so I mean it, that, that demonstrates it as well as what you're you're talking about here well well let's have a listen for ourselves you say, it, it, you say this is part of the the main theme from the film the thing
1: yeah I think it's the main title
0: okay and it's again written by composer Dmitri Tiamkin. Oh jeepers. I'm gonna keep screwing it up. <laughs> Tiomkin. Tiamkin. Sit back, listen, and enjoy. Well, I think that's going to be the most difficult name for me to pronounce today. So hopefully, we've gotten past that. Um, do you, in your opinion, well, let me uh, let me start with this one. How how if if at all has mu- film music changed over the years, or you know has it changed, or, or you know that, that, that's my basic question. Has it changed, or is it basically still essentially the same?
1: Uh, it. It's changed in the way that the culture changes, and the culture, I think, is affected by wars. For example, in the Roaring Twenties, uh, that was after World War One, when everybody was, uh, you know, footloose, fancy-free, nightclubs, dancing, women were smoking cigarettes, uh, and then the Great Depression hits, and uh, movies went from just being, you know, nonsense, and, uh, They became about something but they went into storytelling and of course it was always diversion so then uh, world war ii and then it became about the going off to war and the romance Uh, so as the culture changed uh, popular music would be sucked into films Uh, classical music was always uh, used in film but coming into the 50s and then the 60s it would change as the culture changed and the, uh, the generation split off between the, uh, let's say the old folks, the adults and the kids. It, com- it had a, co- a complete split in the taste in music. And then the movies tried to catch up with that and did so I, thought, I think very badly. Whenever they would try to put rock and roll music into a film, it was sappy. You know, it, it very seldom worked. Uh, John Barry's uh, film uh, Beat Girl was an exception to that and he did a hybrid he did. uh, It was sort of a big band arrangement of rock and roll, you know, with with the guitar. And, uh, you know, that that was an instance of doing it right. But uh, even singers like Frank Sinatra, you know, they were trying to sing uh, and and stay relevant. And uh, uh, when uh, the graduate came along, and uh, the director put songs in there instead of uh, a proper score i think dave grueson uh, kind of strung the things together uh that became a signal that you could do that in hollywood and then it became song song songs and uh movies went into these uh smaller theaters where you'd have a multiplex and the screen screens got smaller and you could hear what was going on in the other movie while you're watching It just I, it turned movies turned to trash until the renaissance uh when uh star wars came along and suddenly you had not only a symphony orchestra which had never really gone away but was useless but uh you had george lucas of the invention of thx sound where he went around to every theater and personally uh measured to make sure that they were using the sound right so with, with the thx sound the surround sound and the orchestra of uh, of John Williams you had a rebirth of the classic uh golden age of Hollywood so that's the uh, long answer and, and the short answer is yes
0: well but i i, I guess i'm also curious and my, my listeners know i ask this question a lot is it well, there's a couple of things, a couple of areas we could go off on um i yeah, let me well I'll, let me just say, I'll share how I feel about it and be curious about your opinions. I, there are times when I just think there's just too much music in a movie. I, One of the things, and, and my listeners know I love John Barry. We're going to talk about him later today. But, I, you know, I've noticed in a lot of the films that he had done, there were times where there was a lot of stuff going on, but there was no music, which I thought was kind of interesting. I think he let the drama play it out without having to, uh, you know, enhance it. Now, these days, you've almost got wall-to-wall music, and which which becomes irritating to me. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that.
1: I think uh, you look at the generation of the filmmakers. You you have the people that are like Spielberg, where they're copying their favorite film directors. You know, he's a, he's a sponge. He soaked up the films he loved, and he began in his mind and in his oeuvre uh remaking the films that he loved as a kid so that's how he brought the uh john williams orchestral music in there uh but after uh, the generation of steven spielberg who's the same age as i am 76 you have the younger generations they didn't watch the older movies the, the golden age movies and then the generation after that they didn't watch the silver age movies so they're reinventing their their conception of what music is supposed to do, and it, now I think it's just become atmosphere. Music is sound effect and atmosphere mixed together, like a Dune and uh, the the second Blade Runner movie. Uh, you know, it, it does nothing for me. Well, and the
0: music has to compete with the with the, the bombastic sound effects too, a lot of times, which
1: well uh, just when, becomes when, one
0: big mishmash, you know.
1: Uh, Glenn Gould, who was uh, an an eccentric pianist, who uh, was famous for his Bach pieces, he once did a review of uh, Eric Wolfgang Korngold uh, score. And uh, he said, speaking about the piano piece, he said, every note that can be there will be there. And what he meant was, it's since he had such an extraordinary ability to compose and an extraordinary ability to play, everything was at a 10. And uh, with, with the invention of the soundboard now, where you can put in, uh, you know, 128 tracks, it's pretty hard for them not to use all 128 tracks.
2: <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. Well, let's, um, let's get into another one of the cues you wanted to talk about. Uh, the cue's called "Paris Montage," written by Michel Lagrange. I, uh, the movie is.
1: It was a TV movie made oh. from a novel.
0: Okay, but tell us a little bit about this cue and what it was that you wanted to highlight
1: about it. The thing about TV movies is, uh, if they have a budget and they get a good composer, the music can really make all the difference in the world and legrand was notorious for waiting till the last minute to compose a a piece that he was hired to compose he was bu- he was busy living life you know and playing but uh, but with this uh, tv uh uh series i think it was a mini series uh he really put a gorgeous amount of uh his talent he, he was a melodicist among other things uh, he was the rarest of all rare birds. Uh, he could he could really do it all, and the way he develops this romantic montage, which is w- what this scene is, is it just flows from one mood to another mood to another mood and ends in a grand style without ever being too much.
0: Okay, well let's have a listen for ourselves. Then, this is a car- uh, called uh, Paris Montage, and it's written by Michel Legrand. The um, the next cue you wanted to talk about is from a composer I'm not at all familiar with, so this I, so I'm really interested to hear more about this. Uh, the cue is called Key West Sundown, and it's written by Michael Lewis. Um, and and I, again, I and I I just I don't know anything about him or, or, or this film. I guess uh, tell me a little bit about uh, again your reasoning behind choosing this.
1: Well, I didn't know Michael J. Lewis except. There was a movie that was made by Brian Forbes that I thought John Barry was going to do the music for. And uh, me and a friend of mine, who's a John Barry friend, we went to see it. And as the movie began, and we heard the music, we thought this is one of the best things John Barry's ever done, you know, and it was just, it was just, it was just amazing. And but it didn't quite sound like John Barry. And then you know, when the credit came up, uh, music by Michael J. Lewis, I just like astounded, you know, my jaw dropped. And by the end of the movie, uh, the, I understand when they had the, the first screening of it and you had all the stars that were in the film were in the audience, uh, the uh, the actor Danny Kaye uh, jumped to his feet and says, this is the greatest music I've ever heard or something like that. It was just a, spon- a spontaneous, uh, uh, you know, expostulation a, a reaction to it. But the reason I chose this is uh, Michael J. Lewis specializes in taking a small theme and building it into something magnificent, big. In this instance, there was no budget for the film and you, there's hardly any music in this queue, but if you see how it develops, it becomes, ah, it's got so much flavor in it it's it just really reaches you it reaches me
0: what it, um from a uh, again i'm not a musician as you and i have talked about i i don't know all the terms and those sorts of things what what is it you think about it from a uh, from a musical a technical standpoint that that helps it to quote reach you unquote
1: performance it is performed with a great deal of feeling. And you know, it makes a difference. Uh, If if you have a wonderful piece of music, uh, and you give it to an orchestra and and they haven't rehearsed, they're just reading notes, you know, going across the page, it can sound like just notes going across the page. But if you have uh, musicians who love what they're playing, and they have the ability to perform, then you can take a tiny thing and turn it into a firecracker.
0: You know and and you've raised an interesting uh question. What do you think about What do you think about the use of the fact that um if I were a musician right now in LA or or London uh, that played on a lot of film scores, I might start getting a little worried. And the only reason why I would get worried is you know there there's a lot of this electronic stuff being done. They're reproducing orchestras using computers. What what are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, in the in the 70s I got my first synthesizer Uh, and when synthesizer music first came out it was a novelty and uh, it would stand out like a sore thumb whenever it was used in you know any piece of music but Jerry Goldsmith for example he took electronic music and he just used it as another color in his scores I think he he did it better than anybody else he would use the extraordinary otherworldly sounds along with the classical orchestra but more to your point uh, there's a writer's guild strike right now and and the reason they're striking is they remember what happened when streaming was going to come along and uh, when the union was negotiating uh residuals they didn't fight for a bigger share of streaming because they never thought streaming would go anywhere you know yeah never take off this time they see that AI is coming. There will be an, an ability to just uh, uh, say to AI what you want, and then you'll get it. And you, you know, you don't have to shell out money for anybody. So they're negotiating up front. They want their chunk, and uh, they want the unions will prevent Hollywood, if they sign the contract they want, from allowing them to be uh, thrown out to pasture.
0: I hope so. I mean, I, 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 to me, the human element in the arts is just so important. I'd hate to see it well, well, taken you know, over by a computer.
1: It's like uh, it, it's feeling. Music is feeling itself, and a machine cannot feel. You, uh, you know, a man can lie to a woman and say, I love you. Uh, but in the end, that works out very badly for, <laughs> for, for at least one of them. And that's that. And that's what all this electronic music will be. It'll be uh, saying something that it doesn't feel. And if the people themselves don't feel to begin with, uh, you know, be be the perfect marriage. We'll see. It, this has a lot to do with humanity, where humanity is is headed.
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's that's for a different podcast, though. Yeah. <laughs> we don't want to get into that one. All right. Well, let's uh. Let's see. Let's have a listen to this beautiful piece of music. I'm anxious to hear it. This is by Michael Lewis, and the cue is called Key West Sundown. We'll get back to our program in a minute. This program is done for the love of film and film music, plain and simple. However, it does take a huge investment in time and in fees for me to make the program work for you. I don't sell commercial time and don't really want to on this program. Rather, I'm kind of like a a public broadcasting station. I need support from listeners like you. For as little as $3 a month, you can help me uh, uh, offset the time spent in putting the program together or maybe you just think of it as leaving a tip in the tip jar either way if you can join up there will be bonuses like an additional 10 to 15 minute segment with our guest every week where we'll play additional cues as well as ask us some extra questions and it's going to be only available to patrons but how do you sign up well it's simple you go to patreon.com slash what's the score and that's all one word that's Patreon, that's P A T R E O N dot com slash what's the score? Check it out. We'd be grateful for your support. That's patreon.com. Okay, full disclosure, uh, again, I'm sure my listeners are tired of me saying this, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm an unabashed huge John Barry fan. To me, he's like number one, and maybe Jerry Goldsmith is a close second, not, not even a close second, a distant second, but still a second. Anyway, so, you know, I'm biased, so we're going to have a section here on John Barry's music, and that's basically how Terry and I connected on Facebook, was through uh, the mutual love of, of that particular uh, composer's work. Um. How do I start this? Let's see. What would you? How would you describe what it is that's special about what 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 Barry did with his music that made it so uh, that that connected with so many people? And and not everybody loves his stuff, and I understand that. And they have their criticisms. I you know we could talk about those if you want. But there are a lot of people that just like me, and I think like you. Just it's you know it's just deep in your soul kind of a connection with his music. What is it musically that he that he was able to do that enabled that to happen? Does is, is that question make sense?
1: Oh sure. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it's uh, he came from a time during during World War II when uh, the Germans bombed the school he was going to, and it killed forty people there, including his headmistress. And at the same time, his brother Patrick brother Patrick's best friend was shot down over Germany so you're a kid uh the you know the children you know or their bodies are lying out in the street whenever he would tell about this he would start crying you know in the middle of an interview so so there's a scar there that's that's uh, connected with the childhood now his brother Patrick was very interested in jazz and was a big fan of the Stan Kenton Orchestra so Uh, John Barry who who really preferred classical music and his mother was teaching him music and and he wanted to be a classical pianist but he says that uh, he has a bad memory and and, uh, Since I met him once I can tell you he is a very shy man. He is Extremely shy and nervous. So I think that had more to do with it. Uh, So anyway, he was exposed to Bill Russo's music Uh, Bill Russo was the orchestrator or one of them for the Stan Kenton Orchestra so when when John Barry was uh, doing his national service you know the military he was was in Cyprus and he took a correspondence course with this arranger and he learned the secret of how to uh, uh, orchestrate brass and jazz okay so that component there mixed with his uh, classical background and uh, him being taught by uh, Francis Jackson, uh, uh, choral work, you know, religious choral work and, and organ. Tho- those two backgrounds are opposite. Now think about it, jazz came from poor, usually black people who could not afford a classical education. They taught themselves and they made up uh, jazz music out of their backgrounds, you know, their, their, their uh, ethnic, uh, backgrounds. And, and white people then would come in, like uh, the Paul Whiteman orchestra, Paul Whiteman. Uh, uh, he premiered, uh, I believe it was uh, Rhapsody in blue. I think that's the one. And uh, oddly enough, a connection uh, Dmitry Tiomkin was the pianist performing the premiere in uh, in Europe uh, of uh, of George Gershwin's music. So you combined uh, Bill Russo and uh, Stan Kenton Orchestra. Francis Jackson, uh, his mother, the piano, uh, you know, the love of classical music with one more thing. He also took a correspondence course with Joseph Schillinger, who was a Russian music theorist that had a musical theory on how to compose using mathematics. And you should see the book. (laughs) If you drop that book on anybody's head, it would be like a steamroller went over and uh, joseph schillinger had uh, tutored uh george gershwin and uh, a lot of porgy and Bess is composed using uh schillinger's techniques and uh, glenn miller the moonlight serenade moonlight serenade came out of an exercise in schillinger's class uh benny goodman stomping at the savoy it was written using the schillinger system and then a lot of other composers leaf stevens uh pete rugelow uh, Vic Mizzy, who did The Adams Family, Green Acres, uh, The Ghost of message Chicken, B.B. King, Quincy Jones, Philip Glass, and uh, Dalton Abbey. Uh, John Lund used, used uh, Schillinger's system. So what I'm saying is there, there's three legs to this bar stool. And John Barry had all three of those, plus one more. Uh, and that's the rock and roll background. Uh, during the war, dance bands, could, you know, they had a lot of work. But when the war was over, nobody had the money to pay for a dance band because the GIs came home, they had to go to work and they were supporting a family and people didn't go out dancing anymore. So those musicians made their way into whatever they could find to do. And a lot of that was TV work. And uh, John Barry put together his group and he met the guy Adam Faith. And uh, through Adam Faith, Adam Faith was a, you know, a handsome young guy young and uh, some would say virile and as he went into movies adam Faith said i want my music guy so that's how beat girl came to be and i i believe that john barry was only paid 250 pounds all in in other words you have to pay for your musicians your orchestra and everything out of 250 pounds and barry recorded it he hated the studio it was a lousy recording and he took his money and went to a better studio and recorded it all again so so what you see here is in in beat girl he used the big band idea with the rock and roll idea and with his arranging skills that joseph schillinger gave him and i believe that was the first uh, soundtrack release uh that uh that they had in london And so he went on to do movies as a result of that. He always wanted to go into movies because his dad owned a lot of movie theaters. And he sat and watched all the classic films. He was tutored in that way. I mean, it went into him. Uh, There's a saying, uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald uh, uh, originated the quote I'm about to use. It's that a man is the essence of the things he loves. So everything that's in Barry, the tragedy, the jazz, uh, the love of classicism, uh, all of those things, are in his music too. If it's in the music, it's in the man.
0: Yeah, yeah, well, a good way to describe it. Uh, one of the uh, one of the cues you wanted to use to illustrate some of his uh, his talents, his skills, it comes from a, a TV special uh, about uh, with us uh, was it Sophia Loren in Rome? The cue is called the ballet. Tell us a little bit about why you wanted to highlight that particular cue.
1: Well, Barry had a piece. Barry uh, was uh, head of A and R for uh, EMI, and uh, he was kind of like a George Martin kind of figure. He he could get the, uh, the, he could pick the singers and he could pick the groups and he could do the arrangements and in many cases uh, write his own music. But he also was developing his arranging skills, and it became his laboratory. So uh, he, was, he was constantly uh, doing e- performing experiments, I guess you, you would say. And uh, which cue did you say this one is that you're gonna play? Uh,
0: the, the ballet from Sophia Loren. Yeah, and, and in, the, yeah.
1: In, this, in this, this was a second uh, TV special. The first one was uh, Elizabeth Taylor in London and, and he didn't orchestrate it. Uh, he had someone else do it and uh, in this one, he wanted to do the whole thing himself. So it, there's a, uh, a scene where you have a it's it's in Rome, you have the the policeman directing traffic. They didn't have traffic lights. It's an old city, they're not going to run wires under the ground. And, and you're going to have a guy standing there and you go you stop, hold on. And he he took a piece he had already composed that was uh, titled Onward Christian spacemen yeah i'm not kidding he and he he rejiggered it classically and he he mickey moused it and mickey mouse is a term where the music fits the the physical actions and it, it was it was so wonderfully done without being a novelty piece it, it's not meant to be hilarious it's a serious piece and uh it's fun
0: oh well yeah you've sold me on it let's have a listen for ourselves this is from a tv special Uh, Sophia Loren in Rome, it's called The Ballet, and it's written by the maestro John Barry. I find interesting about uh, about Barry's music that seems to be unique amongst a lot of composers I mean uh, to be fair others do it I know Goldsmith does it a lot and Williams also to a certain extent but John Barry seems to be really cued in on melody a lot of his cues seem to always have a melody and he was he was always critical,' well, not critical. what's the word I want to use he He talked about sometimes that a lot of scores were very cuey was the word he used, and I think I understood what it was that he meant. It was just kind of it had no melody to it. it was just kind of I don't mean to say that it was noise, but it just it didn't have any melody to it, it uh, maybe so, yeah, yeah, maybe so. but his stuff, most of it. And there were times when he would he would and, and he said the Bond films kind of demanded that being cuey or whatnot. But um, am am I wrong in that assumption that he? It almost seemed like that he, it almost seemed like he was writing a song. Most of his cues were like could have been a song.
1: Well, you you really hit on the secret of uh, of John Barry's approach, is that he would look at a film many times and then he would look at where the crisis and where the resolution, you know, these, these peak moments. And he would write toward that. Like, uh, for example, in, in a master class, I, I watched a master class where George Ballett was uh, talking to, I think it was Barry Douglas. And uh, it was his, his student. And there, he was playing a Rachmaninoff piece. And Barry Douglas played the piece. And then George Ball walked over and he said, uh, he put his hand down here and another hand up there. He said, this is the range that a piano can go. You started up here. And he, he wiggled his hand up here. He says, you have no place to go. You have to start down here. He took He took his other hand. He says, you have to start here and work your way to up here or else it's just all blair 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 and john barry understood that so he would compose by writing a song and the song would embody all the melodic part and then he would extract from the part of the song that you know the development the main theme the recapitulation and he would he would string the movie together score wise so it had unity and it's a, a unifying element that the. Uh, his use of a song and themes from a song. So yeah, you nailed it.
0: It um Yeah, I mean it, it, because I have found that um, I, there there's some themes like, as a for instance, I, people will probably hate me for saying this. John Williams, I like a lot of his quote, main themes. I really like them. I think they're very powerful. But a lot of the what I would call incidental music sometimes just is cuey to me and I it just doesn't do anything for me and uh, he does a lot of that and yet you know some of his main themes are just incredible um does that make sense what I'm saying or, or you disagree
1: well I would have to ask you uh let's say when you were a kid or an adolescent what what music did you listen to
0: outside of movies you mean
1: just in general, whenever you had time to just sit and listen to music, what would you choose?
0: Oh boy, this is going to be embarrassing. Um, I listen to a lot. Uh, listened to a lot of John Denver. Okay. Um, uh, obviously John Barry because we're yeah, yeah. That's who we're talking about okay. Um,
1: what about classical music?
0: He, um, let me think. Because I did, I took a class in high school that, that highlighted classical music, and, I, and actually I really
1: enjoyed it. Uh, Debussy, but, I mean, Debussy we,
0: we, was one that I connected with a lot. Yeah.
1: Uh, but I mean, did you spend your money on it? Would you go out? No, no,
0: not- I didn't necessarily spend my money on it, but, um, but I did enjoy it when I heard it.
1: Yeah, well, that, I'm, I'm thinking that that's it. If you grew up listening to classical music, which I did, in fact, I was a snob. For the longest time, just just classical music, you know, I wanted to know who the great composers were, what their works were, and I worked my way th- through it. And it's it's a, uh, you develop a taste, like people like caviar, you know, and I'd say, how can you eat that? And they say, you develop a taste for it? Or how can you smoke a cigar? You develop a taste for it? Well, in classical music, it's a long-term, long line, uh, it's, a, it's a soup with a lot of flavors. And if you don't grow up with that, it really seems extraneous. I, th- I think you didn't develop a, a, a taste for uh, all of that long line, here's this, this is going to go there, where it's like you're always underwater. You never come up for air. Huh.
0: Okay. Well, makes sense. Makes sense. The um, Another cue you wanted to highlight is from a film a lot of people in Blast. And it... Okay, it's not great cinema. I'm not going to say it's like high on my list of of rewatching and those sorts of things, but uh, to me, this was a great illustration of how a composer can elevate a film and make it bigger and better than it really is. The film I'm talking about is night games, and the cue that you chose was uh, is wet spot. Just kind of tell us a little bit about why you wanted to highlight that particular cue.
1: Well, I went to see the film. Only because John Barry had scored it, and I didn't know what it. Was. And you know, it, it really turned out to be uh, like a uh, not even quite a soft porn flavored yeah. film. Yeah, you know, it's about a woman's fantasy. Her right. her hu- husband is always going off on these long trips, and she's left by herself. So she conjures up this, or maybe she isn't conjuring it up a fantasy about this lover who's wearing all these masks, and he comes in. Anyway, it's it's a uh, very little dialogue so John Barry just I mean he he took all every size paintbrush he had and he just put all the colors on it was like sitting and listening to a concert and I I just enjoyed it very much Uh, the title of the piece you can thank Ford Thaxton for that he just made that
2: (laughs)
0: is he the one that that named it
1: yes he named all the cues okay yeah yeah. I, w- I was so
0: excited when that got released the the, the CD, I mean oh me too and uh b- b- because I just I loved some of the music that I heard in that so it was a it was great that that finally came out and i, and, uh, I agree yeah, yeah am I going to encourage people to watch this movie uh, I don't know but if you want if you want to see the music in its context and then you you know you might find it kind of mildly interesting or if you're like me a big fan of joanna Cassidy you might like Seeing it because of her and a couple of scenes and that, but
1: <laughs> you, you, you mentioned Joanna Cassidy. Uh, when I first saw Blade Runner, yeah, uh, I, I went up to the uh, the uh, refreshments, yeah, and, and she was up there. Oh wow, she had come to. It was the uh, the, the premiere of that of yeah. Blade Runner, and I went up there. To, you know, I don't know popcorn or something. She was there, and I went back to my seat, and she was sitting behind me. Wow, and. Her death scene, you know, where she gets shot and she crashes through right. the glass. Right after her shot, she got up and she left. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, well, it's kind of off topic, but to me, she's like one of the sexiest women that was ever out there. And But anyway, that's neither here nor there.
1: No complaints.
0: <laughs> well, let's have a listen for it. Let's get off this before we get off the rails too far. <laughs> um, the cue is called Wet Spot. It's from a film called uh, Night Games, and it's written again by John Barry. In the, the later years of his life, I noticed that that uh, that Barry had adopted a new title for himself, which I thought was perfect. Uh, in, instead of calling himself a film composer, he called himself a musical dramatist. Tell me a little bit about what your thoughts are on that that observation.
1: Well, conversely, uh, if you're a garbage man, you're a sanitation engineer. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, you know, he, he hobnobbed with the lot he does, which is to say that he, he was a party guy. Oh, yeah. He, yeah. and He uh, was known
0: to enjoy adult beverage or two.
1: Well, uh, when I met him, uh, we could get to the details of that later, but let's just say I, I expected one sort of person, and I saw that sort of person, but then somebody walked up that he knew, and he started cussing and uh, he said, what the F are you doing here? And you know, like that. And it was like my mother, uh, you know, had suddenly flashed people on the subway. Uh, so uh, you know, he, I think he drank in order to be able to be convivial because he was horribly shy. Uh, and that's all there is to that. But uh, calling himself a, you know, musical dramatist that would be something he could say to the to the wealthy people. Yeah, you know,
0: it's interesting. My experience in meeting him the one time that I, well, I talked to him once on the phone. Perhaps you've heard that episode. I don't know. Uh, and and then I met him once um, at uh, Radio City when celebration for his seventieth birthday. Very brief, but um, he was he was very nice and high spirited and personable. Uh, nothing at all like what you're describing about being shy, and I don't know if maybe that changed over the years or what. Well,
1: he had a near-death experience. True, that yeah, was, true. That could have and, that could have done a lot. And the Hellraiser turned into a, a spiritual man.
0: That yeah, true. That's true. And
1: you know, marrying uh, someone who was uh, 22 years his junior, who was a religious person, that can have an effect on you.
0: Yeah, I, I just I, I was so happy I finally had that chance. Uh, my only regret is they had a very strict policy of no, no cameras, and I, I my wife was sitting. I don't know. She was like the next section over, and I you know she had the camera, and I thought about giving her you know just go ahead and take a picture, but I didn't do that. So I you know I, well, I all I known. have is my memory. I don't have like photographic proof like you yeah. do, yeah. Yeah. with well, uh, I, him signing I've, some of your albums. But uh,
1: I brought a professional photographer with me. <laughs> <laughs> did you really? <laughs> I sure did. Well, and I, and, well, we can get into that later.
0: Yeah, okay, okay. Um, the I mentioned when we introduced you that you are a, a composer as well. By the way, folks, I think I've mentioned this on my program several times before, the bumper mu- music that you hear in the middle of our uh, podcast was written by our guest today, Terry. Uh, so you know, he is definitely a composer. Uh, and he's tried to uh, uh, I think he's dipped his toe in the water if you will to try to get into film composing at one time or another but there was one uh, one cue you wrote when you were auditioning to write for a film that you felt would illustrate a little bit about uh, John Barry's music to help us understand it a little bit better and we're going to play that here in a minute it's uh, the main theme from a film called Axed I guess uh, tell me a little bit about the, the story behind that and uh, what you were trying to, to demonstrate with it
1: Okay, well, you'll find none of John Barry in uh, in, in the film acts. Um uh, uh, let's just say I was I was auditioning for a horror film, and a a uh, small-time producer wanted to make movies, and the the easiest way to make money is to make a horror film, and uh, he said he wanted a score. He he had. Uh, He had chosen Christopher Young as the kind of composer that he won't doing his film. You know, uh, okay, he's not going to pay for an orchestra, a big orchestra and chorus. So there's no way I could even get close to that, even on a synthesizer. So I went a different way. I I went at it like I thought Jerry Goldsmith would do it. Uh, Take the movie Seconds, or uh, no, not not Seconds, how about... uh, What what was the film that had uh, the virus? There was this virus that uh, had been developed out in the desert. It was a a terrorist. I know what you're talking about. about The Satan bug, yes. Oh, okay. It was sort of like a Satan bug. And uh, I sent it to him and he sent me a very nice rejection letter. So all all you're gonna hear in this is, you will hear the reason why I didn't get the job. Let's put it that way.
0: But it, but it's not going to necessarily illustrate anything about uh, uh, musical influences from either Barry or Goldsmith. I take it a little from Goldsmith. Okay, fair enough. Well, let's have a listen for ourselves. This is written by our guest uh, Terry Wallstrom. It's the main theme uh, uh, from a movie called Axe. It was uh, an audition. Didn't end up in the final final film. But uh, let's sit back and have a listen to this. <laughs> Um, one of the things that I admire about you—that's that's better than me—because I'm I'm just really kind of limited in my knowledge of film music and and uh, and the people that I really like and follow and those sorts of things. You had a wide variety of uh, people that you follow and that you're interested in. Uh, you wanted to feature a cue by uh, Lalo Schifrin from the film. I, I I guess is the film called The Liquidator?
1: Yes, it was. Uh, you know. When James Bond became popular, everybody jumped on that market. Oh, yeah. Spies, spies. And uh, the only two, well, okay. There were only three composers, I think, that did something you'd want to listen to. Uh, Elmer Bernstein did the Matt Helm. uh, uh, Lalo Schifrin did the Liquidator. And Jerry Goldsmith did Iron Man Flint. Now the Liquidator, you're going to hear maybe a feeling of Zulu, and of Goldfinger. But it doesn't sound like either one of them. But in other words, he captured the exact spirit of a, of a John Barry spy movie without at all imitating him.
0: Okay, okay. By the way, which reminds me, and I'm curious, how influential was... Henry Mancini's uh, theme for Peter Gunn on the so-called spy genre. Do you you think that had any influence at all?
1: I think it influenced everybody. Uh, What was so powerful about that, other than uh, John Williams playing the ostinato on the piano, (laughs) uh, is that there was no budget and Henry Mancini desperately needed work. He he ran in to a, a friend of his on an army base where he could get a free haircut after the war, <laughs> that, that's that's how broke he was, and uh, he ran into the guy who's starting the the uh, the series, and the guy said, "Yeah, I'm looking for somebody who could do the music for this, you know, private eye," and so you know, it's like, <laughs> "Okay, I'm your guy." You know, here here's fifteen dollars. You know, come up with something, so he he really wanted. To gain, to gain some attention, and by golly, he did.
0: Yeah, so I, I mean, I think he had an influence as well on it. Well, let's um, let's listen to this cue. Then this is from uh, the uh, film called The Liquidator, and it's written by composer Lalo Schifrin. Again, my knowledge is a little bit limited, and some of these things, some of these cues you've recommended today, I haven't listened to, and I've been enjoying being able to hear them for the first time. And this is another one, which I'm ashamed to say I, I'm not familiar with, and yet I hear a lot of talk about it. Um, in fact, my mind's going blank at the moment the name of the film, you'll be able to tell me in a moment. The cue is called Gladi- uh, Gladiators Fight to the Death, written by Alex North. A lot of people, as I recall, seem to consider this one of the finest film scores ever done um well again i'm embarrassed the name of the film is Spartacus. Spartacus. cheapers. okay spartacus so um and and a lot of people think this is one of the finest film i've heard that alex north has actually a couple of scores that are kind of in that in that same class Uh, tell me a little bit about why you wanted to include that particular cue here to share with our listeners and what is it that you like about it
1: Alex North is an incredible composer for a number of reasons. And his influence really began when he started doing, let's call it modern music. He put modern music in film. There's a a quote by him. He said, fear is a problem with film music and films. People want to be conventional. And of course, there are commercial considerations to every film that's made. He says, but as a, as a composer, if you're not daring in your art, you're bankrupt. And and so, his his use of instruments and, and uh, tonal clusters uh, is uh, avant-garde. You know, it's it's the tip of the spear. And what he does in this piece, it's very percussive. Of course, it's two gladiators who are friends are fighting to the death, while these patricians, uh, rich people, are being given a private uh, audience by uh, Peter Ustinov. And uh, so they're just, for their own amusement, you know, they're kind of laughing and eating grapes and and watching these two guys fight to the (laughs) death for them. And his music is just, you can feel the stab wounds.
0: Wow, wow. Well, let's have a listen for ourselves. Again, the cue is from the film called Spartacus. It's called Gladiators Fight to the Death, and it's written by the maestro Alex North. typically I mean I always uh, ask people where can they uh, you know get in touch with you and follow you and because usually they have something to promote or talk about now in all fairness we, we should mention because I did mention you're an author there's what uh, one or two books that you have out there uh, what are those again
1: uh, my first book was, uh, <clears throat> it was about the on the one hand, The history of conscientious objectors from the time of the roman empire to the end of the vietnam war but it was also the other half of the book is about me as a conscientious objector going through the prison system and then uh
0: is is that available can people still pick that up or see it
1: yeah uh amazon or uh, lulu lulu lulu.com
0: okay and the name of it is
1: uh i I whipped let's see (laughs) i whipped (laughs) (laughs) I can't remember the name of my own book. Well, one of them is
0: <laughs> "Senior Moment." Senior Moment.
1: <laughs> this is funny. Uh, I wept by the rivers of Babylon. Ah, a, you're right, okay. A, yep,
0: yep. I remember now.
1: Ask me the, that again, and we will edit out that embarrassing lapse <laughs> <lots> of memory. <laughs> Take two. <laughs> uh, and the
0: name and the name of the book is
1: "I Wept by the Rivers of Babylon: oh, okay. a, prisoner, a Prisoner of Conscience in a Time of War." And the other is. The monorails of Mars,
0: which is more of a science fiction piece, I think, right?
1: It's a combination of science fiction and uh, uh, mind control. Okay. Reli- religious mind control. Okay. And I'm and I'm working on my well, I've finished my autobiography, and it'll be titled uh, "A Funny Thing Happened to Me on My Way to Armageddon."
0: <laughs> Folks, I got to tell you, I mean. Terry is a brilliant writer. He just has a really, a gift for the gab, if you will, and a gift for writing that needs to be enjoyed. I can't encourage you enough to try to, if those topics sound interesting to you, please pursue them and look them up because I think you'll really enjoy them. I don't think Terry gets any royalties from it at all anymore, so there's no benefit to him. Just get, get it because it's a benefit to you for reading it, believe me. Um, I think you'll really enjoy it. But So, I mean, you don't typically have a, we don't need to advertise where they can find you and follow you and that sort of thing. I guess, right?
1: Uh, when you go to the post office, look up on the uh, <laughs> wanted. <laughs> you probably see my picture too. Oh, jeez. Okay, no.
0: all right. Well, enough for that question. Hey, yeah. listen, and we've. I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed this discussion with you and and uh, uh, learning more not only about you as a person but also hearing your expertise and analysis on a lot of different varieties of film music. Uh, I, I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have.
1: It's more fun than a poke in the eye with a stick.
0: You sound just like my old man. That's the kind of thing he would. He, that's the kind of thing he would say. Beats a sharp stick in the eye.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There you go.
0: Oh geez. Okay. Well, geez. I'm glad to have that endorsement.
1: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no. It, it, it's you're always delightful.
0: No, really. It's it's and it's great to connect with you on this. Uh, again, my uh, my thanks to our guest Terry Wallstrom for sharing all his insights and his music and those sorts of things. I hope all of you have enjoyed it as well. My thanks to uh, our sponsors on Patreon. Thank you for your support of the program. I'm most grateful for that. Uh, And also to just all our listeners. I hope that you're enjoying the content and and get something out of it. And I think you certainly do uh, after today's program. So anyway, there's uh, not much to say uh, with everything all considered. And it's just simply this, that my name's Frank Wilson. My time's up. I thank you for yours. Thanks for listening to What's the Score?